0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 2. It is Genesis, the first book of the Bible, the second chapter, we'll pick up where we left off last week in verse 4 and continue through the end of the chapter. Hear now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, before any plant of the field was in the earth, and before any herb of the field had grown. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the earth, and there was no man to till the ground. But a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hidekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless it in our hearing. Let us pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you would illuminate our hearts and minds by your spirit to receive it, to understand the good world that you made, what you have created us for, And though much has been lost in the fall, what remains for us to do? And most of all, how we should know your Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we can return to this state of innocence that has been lost. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What is the perfect world? The ideal world. How would the world be if everything was as it should be? What is the ideal life of human beings? If everything were perfect, if everything were right, if there was no sin or death or violence, warfare, disease, poverty, heartbreak, all the other things that make for suffering and difficulty in this life. If there were none of those things, how would the world be? Many have pondered this question, though with varying degrees of success or failure. One of the most popular songs of all time is a song by the former beat old John Lennon. Imagine... It's actually not a very good song because while it talks about peace and sharing and the like, it does so by explicitly rejecting God. Uh, John Lennon, he advocated a form of communism and of building a utopia, building a perfect world on this earth. As he says in the song, he says, Imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. And then he continues, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Now, in the world, to those without God, this sounds very utopian. It sounds very idealistic. But it was ideas like Lenin's atheism and communism that were the reason that over 100 million people were killed in the 20th century under regimes such as Stalin in the Soviet Union and Mao in China. Our human attempts at fixing this world, at making this world perfect, always fail. So we might ask, well, what is a perfect world? Has there ever been a perfect world? Is there any way we can have a perfect world? Well, as Christians... With God's word, we can know the answer. For one chapter, in chapter 2 of Genesis, we see the world, and we see man's life in this world as it was intended. We see man as created, as our confessional documents say, in his state of innocence, good and in the image of God, before the fall and sin. Last week, in chapter 1 through Verse 3 of chapter 2, we saw the week of creation, days 1 through 6 of creation, followed by day 7 of God's Sabbath rest. In chapter 2, we see something uh, that is called a recapitulation, something that occurs often in Scripture, where after describing certain events, the text will go back and describe them again but from a different angle with different points of emphasis. Basically, same story, but from a different angle. So while last week was the account of creation as told with an emphasis on God's creative power and authority, out of nothing, God making everything in the span of six days and very good, this week we get a partial retelling of creation with a particular focus on humanity, on man and his creation, and what proceeds out of that? So we will look at this recapitulation of the part of creation concerning man today in three points. First, we see creation in verses 4 through 14. We see how God prepares to create man and does create man and what provision he makes for man. Second, we see a covenant in verses 15 through 17. Having created man, God makes a special act of providence towards him. He gives man a command, but with a promise. And third, we see companionship in verses 18 through 25. Among the creatures, there is not a suitable helper for the man. And so God will act yet again. So we have creation, covenant, and companionship. Those are our points for this morning. First, we see creation in verses 4 through 14 of this chapter. Now, in verse 4, we get the series, the first of a series of introductory statements that will be used to structure the rest of the book of Genesis. These are the generations, as some translations say, or as the New King James I read from said, these, this is the history. Now, this Hebrew word here for generations or history is toledot. And Genesis is often referred to as following this structure of Toledotes. Every few chapters, you'll see another one of these introductions that these are the generations or this is the history, again, using this word Toledote. Now, usually when it occurs, the Toledote is referring to a particular person. So it'll say, like, these are the generations of Adam or these are the generations of Noah and so on and so forth, and then each of the sections that follows deals with the descendants of that particular individual and tells their story. But this first Toledote does not is not assigned to a particular person. It is assigned to the heavens and the earth in the days of creation, because we look at the scene before the creation of man. This is the Toledote of the beginning of humanity. Now this first part of this accounting in verses four through 14, we can see 3 subparts of this part. There is purpose, there is person, and there is place. So first, purpose. Verse 5 describes a lack of plants, specifically plants and herbs of the field. So what it is talking about is a lack of cultivated plants, the kind of plants that are farmed, that are raised for agriculture. There are two reasons given for why these plants aren't there. First, there is not rain. One of the preconditions necessary for such plant life is rain. There has to be water on the ground. It can be brought by rain or, in our day, because of the advances of technology, we see it sometimes with irrigation. But either way, there has to be this watering of the ground. But another important precondition for these plants is that they cannot and do not grow without tending, without care. They require labor to grow properly. We also see it noted in verse 5 that thus far there is an absence of man to do this work, to till the ground. We are in the state of creation in these verses before this act of creating man on the sixth day. We see here part of what God's purpose in creating man is. He is created to labor. He is created to work the ground. There is a common misconception that work, that labor, is a consequence of the fall. That if man had not fallen, he would not have to work. But it is clear in this account of chapter 2 that man is created to work. Part of his exercise of dominion, we looked at the dominion mandate last week, is through the work of his hands. This is part of his subduing the earth. He will build things. He will make things. He will control things by his work. Now, after the fall in chapter 3, labor is not being introduced for the first time, but rather what was guaranteed good and productive labor is cursed, is made more difficult. Man in his state of innocence before the fall was created to work, to produce, to exercise dominion through vocation in God's creation. This is not the only purpose for which God created man. God created man for other things as well, for love, for fellowship, for communion, for this true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness we looked at in our catechism. But this work, this labor, this vocation is a major component. But second, we see, starting in verse 7, a person. With this purpose in place for man's creation, then God does create man. Now what is described here is a creative process, unique from other creation acts as described before. In the other creation acts, God created by speaking. He said, let there be, or let the waters abound, or let the earth bring forth, and it happens. with this creation of man, something is different. In chapter 1, verse 26, God said, let us make. Well, here in chapter 2, we see how God does the making, how he carries out this special creative act. All other creatures come into being out of creative fiat, out of God speaking, and it is so, God creates man out of a special act of love and care. He takes something that's already there, the dust of the ground informs man, shapes man, and then breathes the breath of life into him. Now, there is a close connection in the Bible because uh, in both Hebrew and Greek, this is true. The same word is used for breath that is used for spirit. So God not only gives man physical breath, you know, the ability to breathe air, after all, every creature has some capacity of that, of breathing, be it animals with lungs, fish with gills, or plants with their photosynthesis cycles. But what is uniquely bestowed upon man with this breathing is spirit. Man is created body and soul. Similarly, the word, tra- the word that's translated being at the end of verse 7 is the same word for soul. Man alone, unlike all the other creatures, is rational, is moral, possesses those qualities which belong not only to the physical life, but to the spiritual life. But man, with a purpose, needs a place. We see this in verses 8 through 14. Where does God introduce this crowning jewel of his creation? We see in verse 8 that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. Now what is created in Eden is essentially paradise. There every tree was made to, go, made to grow that was pleasant for food, with one catch. There's another tree, a tree of knowledge of good and evil, to which we will return again in a moment. But this garden of Eden, it was a beautiful place was ideal for human life and flourishing. It would have provided man a perfect place to exercise his dominion, to work, and to serve God. We get some geographical details about this garden. Now we see some place names here that are recognizable and some that are not. So we see, for instance, the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Those exist to this day. They Uh, Both rise in Turkey, and then they meet in what is now Iraq. These other two, the Pishon and the Gihon, as well as some of these other place names here, they're unknown. We don't know what they're referring to. Now, this should not be surprising. For one, we know that some chapters from now, the great flood of Noah is coming, and that will alter the earth. It may be that these two rivers were not left after this. It may be that they dried up. Iraq, as you know, is now a desert. But still, this description, we have enough of it that it can place that places the location of this garden in the Middle East, in what would now be Iraq, or near there somewhere. Now the text further adds to the beauty and provision of this garden by describing surrounding areas where there's gold and precious stones, other good things in abundance, beautiful things, things used to adorn, things to further add to man's dominion and his enjoyment of the earth. Now man has been made in this state good, body and soul given a task and a place to carry it out. But wait, there's more. And this brings us to our second point. After creation, we see covenant in verses 15 through 17. Now, just a brief word about the placement of the covenants in the text. There is a certain popular theory in our day. Um, It's advocated, for one, by Meredith Quine. That's a name I mentioned a couple times last week uh, because of his view on creation and his view of Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Uh, But he also advocates that when man was created, he was already created in covenants, that covenant and creation are one in the same acts. But this does not seem to be an accurate description of either the biblical text, which we look at here, where we see this covenant coming after, or how our Reformed theology interpreted, it, as we read in our catechism. So question 12 of the shorter, question 20 of the larger catechism, they're on the back of your bulletin, if you'd like to look, both place the making of covenant, subject or subsequent to creation, and so too does the Westminster Confession. It places the creation of man in chapter 4, but covenant in chapter 7. Now, why am I telling you this? Why does this matter? Well, what is the implications of collapsing covenant and creation into the same act? Well, the reason that people do this often is they want to mitigate the perpetual and universal binding of the moral law, because man is created moral, man is created accountable to God's law, and then also to mitigate the continuing validity of the dominion mandate. For Klein and for others who follow him, law only exists, they would say, in the context of covenants, even though this doesn't seem to be an accurate biblical reflection on the place of law. Furthermore, Scripture places dominion in chapter 1 as a part of creation, prior to any discussion of the covenantal relationship in chapter 2. The reason some collapse law and dominion into covenant is to argue that Christ fulfills the covenant with Adam and then so relieves or downplays Christian duties under the moral law, as well as the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth which I would argue that this view is a foundation for antinomianism, for opposition to the continuing validity of God's law, which, as Reformed people, were very clear that the moral law does continue. Uh, Much of our catechisms are expositing the Ten Commandments and how they continue to apply to us. So we should reject this view that collapses creation and covenant together, and we should look at them as separate, as subsequent, in sequence. Perhaps a way to illustrate this, you are born to parents because they are your parents. You are born with an obligation to obey them, to love them, to honor them. They cared for you. They raised you. They gave you what you needed to live. But that's not the only relation that exists between a parent and a child. So one such example we see would be a matter of inheritance, inheritance is not given to you on the day you are born. It is given to you later. It is given to you on a day that terms are met, usually the parent's death, if you have pleased them throughout your life. Well, inheritance is an additional gift, an additional blessing that comes from the parent-child relationship that is not part of the natural relationship. It's based on the child living and acting and being a certain way. That is a helpful way to illustrate covenant. Covenant is not man's natural created state, it is an additional act of God towards us. The Catechism calls it a special act of providence, something given additionally. Now this distinction helps us to understand why, after the fall, the mandate for dominion remains. This being fruitful, multiplying, subduing the earth. In fact, it's restated again in Genesis 9, after the fall that man is to multiply and fill the earth. Family remains the most basic and essential unit of society. These gifts of God created into our nature do not go away because of sin. They face difficulty. They need to be renewed in certain ways by grace after the fall, but they remain as a part of God's creation. The moral law remains post-fall because even though we cannot keep it perfectly, it remains written on the hearts of men to bind them forever, to testify to their sin and misery and need for salvation, as well as ordering society and ordering our lives. Romans 2 is clear that the law is written on the hearts of the Gentiles. They know to a certain extent what God requires of them. As chapter 19 of the Westminster Confession is clear, this moral law is the same law that was delivered on tablets at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the first table concerning our love for God and our second concerning love of neighbor. The Ten Commandments form the basis for all civil morality and every person is bound by them whether they choose to acknowledge it or not. Obviously, the heathens and pagans break the first table by failing to love and worship the true God as he commands. Everyone breaks the second table in various ways by failing to love neighbor. But the law being broken does not make it any less of a law. The law is good, and the law binds all of mankind forever. But now, having situated covenant properly, let us look at the covenant itself. So God has done this great favor to man by creating him, giving him life, giving him purpose, giving him this garden and all good things in it. But then this special act of providence, this additional stipulation, God enters into this covenant of man with man in verses 15 and following. This covenant is an act of special revelation. It has to be spoken by God. It is not naturally known to man in his created state. Man does know that he is moral. He knows there is right and wrong. He's even put in the garden to work and to tend it and to keep it. But there is something additional that must be revealed to man by the word of God. And that is this. Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. So, after his creation, God places man under this covenant. God condescends to man. He comes down to man to reveal to him additional things beyond his natural knowledge. That is, man is blessed. He's given life. He's given this garden. He's given a way to everlasting life, but on one condition. He must not eat. Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this covenant is referred to in our theology often as either the covenant of works this is the language that Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 uses or the covenant of life. This is what the larger and shorter catechisms use. They're referring to one and the same thing. I've also printed those texts on the back of the bulletin if you'd like to look at those. But all of this to say, it is a covenant of works because works were the requirement of man in the covenant. In order to fulfill the covenant, man had to do certain works. He had to do certain things, not eat from the tree. But it is a covenant of life because life is what is promised in it. Life is the reward. Life is the blessing for successful fulfillment of the covenant terms. In this state of covenant, Adam was sinless, but he was able to sin. He was, as our standards say, left to the freedom of his will. He could choose to obey God, or he could choose to disobey and sin by eating of the tree. Had he continued under this state of sinlessness, not eating of the tree, he would have had everlasting life. It was a state of probation after he... Fulfilled the terms of the covenant, he would have lived with God in true blessedness forever, unable to sin. But there was another way this could, and sadly did, play out. To not live under the terms of the covenant, to disobey God, and to transgress his law by eating the forbidden fruit would result in Adam's death. And sadly, we know that Adam did disobey God, and so reaped the consequences of the fall, and of sin, and of death. And we will look at that more, Lord willing, next week. But in this state of innocence, after the creation of man and God's covenant with man, we have one piece that is missing. And this brings us to our final point this morning. After creation and covenant comes companionship in verses 18 through 25. In verse 18, God speaks again, declaring that it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And in verses 19 and 20, we get a parading of animals. So God has formed all the other animals. He brings them forth out of the earth. This this was his other work of the sixth day, as we looked at last week. But then he now brings them before Adam with a twofold purpose. Verse Adam is to give them names. Part of his office of exercising dominion over the creatures is that Adam is the one who gets to decide what they should be called. But this parading has another purpose. It also shows Adam that he uniquely is alone. There is not another creature among the creatures who is like him, that can help him, can complement him in his God-given work. Something, someone, is missing. And Adam is brought to a realization of this. And so there remains one creative act to be done. In verse 21, God causes Adam to fall asleep, fall into a deep sleep. This is a unique kind of sleep. The word used here to describe this sleep is usually used in Scripture for a special kind of sleep that God causes for specific purposes. I mean, it has to be a pretty deep sleep when you see what God does next. He actually takes out one of Adam's ribs. You have to be deeply enough asleep that there's no chance of waking up in the middle of that. And from this rib, God forms a woman, the first woman, Eve. Though we probably don't often think about this when we consider this passage, it is deeply significant that the woman is made from the man that means that the woman is made in a one flesh union with man john calvin puts it like this to the end that the conjunction of the human race might be the more sacred he that is god purposed that both males and females should spring from one and the same origin therefore he created human nature in the person of adam and thence formed eve that the woman should be only a portion of the whole human race. This is the import of the words of Moses, which we have had before. And then he quotes verse, chapter 1, verse 28. God created man, and he made them male and female. In this manner, Adam was taught to recognize himself in his wife as in a mirror, and Eve, in her turn, to submit herself willingly to her husband as being taken out of him. There is this One flesh union, this one flesh mutual love. Calvin goes on to write that if Adam and Eve had proceeded from different sources, it could be a cause for envy or for contentiousness, for rivalry between them. They'd be competing instead of recognizing that they were one flesh. But because of this one flesh union, Adam loves Eve and cherishes her, and Eve submits to Adam because... They, by design, love each other as they love themselves. Now, this is a powerful picture of what marriage should be for us. It is, too, becoming one flesh. And so those of us who are married, we should love our spouses as we love ourselves, because in a certain sense, our spouse is a part of us. Loving our spouse is loving ourselves. Now, we must also note that it is clearly and naturally evident to Adam that this helper that has been made is suitable for him. God doesn't have to tell him. He sees and he knows. This points us to a created order, to what is revealed to us in nature, the order of nature as it pertains to, among other things, human sexuality. Man looks at everything else that has been made, cannot find a suitable helper. But he looks at woman and right away knows that there is a helper suitable, that there is potential for a one-flesh union. This is not possible in homosexual relationships or other perversions. From the beginning, God created humanity, male and female, and for male and female to be united together in monogamous union. There's no room for homosexuality, for transgenderism, for polygamy, for bestiality. All of this is precluded and excluded from the good world that God made. These things only enter as corruptions of nature because of the fallen sin. And so Adam speaks in verse 23, recognizes the depth and the intimacy of this one flesh union. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Then we get a follow up statement in verse 24. Now it is not clear just from the text who says what is said in verse 24. It is a is it a continuation of Adam speaking in verse 23 or is it something that Moses adds as a comment? It's probably more likely that this was something Moses added under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, simply because it's speaking to things that Adam would not have yet known. Adam did not have parents that he had to leave behind. So what Moses is doing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he is commenting on, he is applying Adam's speech to the post-fall world. This is why we have marriage the way that we do, or at least why we should have it. One man, one woman, separated from all others and united in a lifelong one-flesh bond. This marriage is the formation of a new family. Again, that most basic and fundamental societal unit. There is, uh, to a certain degree, a separation from parents. It doesn't mean that you get married, you completely abandon or shun your parents or forget them, but it shows that marriage is the most personal, most important, most primary relationship that any person can have. It is only subservient to a person's relationship to God, and it is a more vital relationship than relationship with other family members, than with children, than with work, than with anything else. Now, this is pretty challenging in our day where marriage is seen as purely optional and its length unspecified. The world teaches that if you don't like your marriage, you can walk away and get a new one later if you want. But this is not God's design. God designed marriage as one man, one woman for life, to become one flesh until death. Now, we recognize that in this fallen world, there are reasons, and even good reasons why the union may have to be severed. But we also recognize that these things come because of the fall and sin. God created man and woman for this one flesh lifelong union. Now the final note we get on this first wedding is in verse 25. The man and woman were both naked and not ashamed. In this pre-fall paradise, there was no shame. So shameless they were, they did not even have to wear clothes. Shame comes as a result of sin. As a result of the original created unity and harmony being broken. Before the fall, man and woman had perfect unity, perfect communion. It is only after the fall that this is interrupted. So now we have man and woman together in paradise, joined in one flesh union, given dominion over the creatures, given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Everything is perfect, or so it would seem. The world is as it should be. It is something beautiful and right in the presence and power of God, something that even John Lennon's idyllic vision could not comprehend. But sadly, tragically, things will not remain this way for long. After chapter 2 comes chapter 3, the fall and the introduction of sin. That sin has sundered and stained and broken this good world that God made and this good life that Adam and Eve were to have. We all see this. We all know this. We all recognize this. As we hear this text, we hear something that seems very far, very distant from us. The world cries out to us, in various ways, that we have lost something, that things are not as they should be. But there is a way back. Though this world and this life remain fallen and sinful, Jesus Christ has made a way for restored, perfect fellowship, for eternal life and blessedness with God. After Adam's fall, Christ will come. He will keep the law perfectly in the way that Adam could not. He will die an atoning death to pay the penalty for Adam's and our sin. External life and blessedness are offered to those who will repent of their sins and believe in this gospel by faith. It is for this life and blessedness with God that we were created. And so may we all have this life and blessedness. May we all trust in Christ, believe in Christ, hope in Christ that one day again, we will live in the perfect world let us pray father we thank you for this word that you have given us we thank you for all the blessings of this life that you have given us that you have created us to have even though this world is fallen and sinful you in so many ways watch over us and preserve us and bless us But we also see in this text something that seems far removed from us, a world and a life that we no longer have. And we thank you that by your Son, Jesus Christ, you have made provision for which we can be reconciled to you and have hope of eternal life that is in this paradise that has been lost. And I pray that all here gathered would believe this and would proclaim this truth to this lost and dying and sin-stained world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.